From the hills of central New York and the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode should be familiar to anyone in the turfgrass industry for the last 35 years, Professor Rock Aswa of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Rock is the 2023 USGA Award recipient for outstanding contribution to turfgrass science and the game of golf. Rock has been integral in many important national and international research and policy discussions. Often he does this from a broader agricultural perspective. But for this chat, we focus on his award, organic matter, and precision turfgrass management. Just a note before we get started, it's our 10th season of Frankly Speaking, and it's time to thank the folks at Dryject who have been with us from the very beginning. I've been an advocate of Dryject services because I've seen the results, how it improves performance, and maximizes productivity by aerating, top dressing, and amending in a single pass. Don't take my word for it. Check them out at dryject.com. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Rock Gaswah, Professor Gaswah, former department head. So many ways to describe you, Rock, but the most recent way where a couple of old guys have a historical perspective on what it is you just were awarded from the USGA. So why don't you, like we did over dinner the other night at GCSA conference and show, why don't you give me a little perspective and everybody a perspective of the different USGA awards? Yeah, I'd be happy to, Frank. And a great dinner, by the way. We had great company, and thanks for joining, and thanks for the invitation today. The, the U.S. Green Section Award, the USGA has multiple awards, obviously, that they give annually. And the Green Section Award, as the name implies, targets people that have worked in the agronomic side. And it can be a superintendent, or it could be pretty much anybody that has worked in some level of advice or development of new ideas or whatever the case may be. And I was privileged to be nominated by two very close friends at Rutgers, uh, Bruce Clark and Jim Murphy, and they must have put together a really good package because I was able to get it. And I consider myself among a kind of a laundry list, I think you would agree, Frank, of people that have made really outstanding contributions to the game and to the agronomic side of what the superintendents do. I mean, 100%, I would call it our sort of equivalent of uh, who's who of golf course management and particularly the turf grass side of it. And what I've liked is it has gone to superintendents as well. Isn't it one of those awards that also superintendents get? Oh, yeah, Dennis Lyon. And then last year, I was really impressed. Frank Doby, you know, who was so involved. I think you're on the committee, the Muster Foundation Committee. I mean, that's a gentleman that has given so much time and effort to getting this really nice award in the hands of deserving students that go on then and continue to make contributions, and many of them have. So I like the diversity of the backgrounds. You know, Jim Watson from Toro's received right. it, and of course, a lot of fellow academics have received it as well. So there's a lot of different kind of ideas of who's won and the whys behind it, right? So- yeah, and I have not been privileged to be uh, on the Musser Award Committee, but it's funny that you mentioned that. I was looking at the picture. They must have gathered at the recent show And I was looking at the picture and it is a a lot of our academic colleagues, as well as many superintendents that have big teaching programs. Right. And that makes sense. Although it is an undergraduate award, not a graduate award, is it? That's a great question. I thought it was undergrad. Um, I thought the Mustard student was a, a single undergrad. Yeah. In their senior year. Right. And, you know, it's the best of the best that are out there. Yeah. And I remember my pal, and I know you know him, Monroe Miller. Right. From Blackhawk Country Club in Madison won the award. I mean, Monroe used to describe editing Jim Beard's book 
the old golf course maintenance book that he did years and years ago. And Monroe got himself into many editing jobs. But I think one of the things that's really cool, and it wasn't really mentioned in too many things I read about you getting the award, so I hope that gets better. One of the things that it said is somehow your research resulted in reduced fossil fuel use. I thought this was interesting because I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. Did he do something that... I'm not aware of. So I go to your Google Scholar page, which I have in front of me here, and you've got me by a full 11 points uh, on the H index for those of you academics in the audience keeping score. But I tell you, Rock, whatever the USGA said, causing me to look back at the things you've been involved in, right? That's one of the things that happens from longevity. You know, you're involved in biomass stuff. You're involved in aromatic phenolics. You're involved in the buffalo grass breeding program. You're doing physiological stuff with mitochondrial composition, herbicide work. Now, here's the question, pal, because we know each other well, so I have to think of something interesting that we don't talk about at dinner. That's a wide range of interest, plus you did administration. How have you been able to sort of make your way out into administration and then back into what continues to be a really productive career? That's a great question, Frank, because I got into the administrative thing and I thought I'm done, right? I gave away books. I told people I'm never coming back to turf. I want to do this administrative stint. I thought I would be a department head till I retire, right? Then I got into it and I realized that's not where my heart was, right? The normal stint, you know, this in academics is usually five years. Then they usually get renewed in their contract for administrative whatever. And then maybe they do two and maybe they do three or maybe they do two and go on to be a dean. And that's sort of the track I thought I was on because I thought I could affect change in a very positive way in the bureaucracy of an academic institution. And it's not just Nebraska, it's everyone. But that bureaucracy is a quagmire of things that can't be changed or won't be changed. And the amount of time you have to convince the people that this is a better idea than what we're currently doing, or maybe we shouldn't have done this because it's creating stress for the students or stress for the staff or stress for the faculty, whatever the case may be. That was a hill I did not want to climb. Compare that to, you know, you throw out an idea that may be a little bit different, right? And you're notorious for this, right? And then you wait for the reaction and then you back it up with research and then you wait for the reaction. And, you know, next thing you know, you've got people adopting it. And those people, you know, our practitioners are the ones that say, yeah, this worked. It was really cool. And then they share it with others and then they share it with others. And then you get invited to speak about what you demonstrated in your research and you start spreading the word. And before you know it, people are adopting practices that you're suggesting as a means to make their job more efficient less stressful, all of the above, right? So it wasn't an easy transition back, I will say that, from administration because, you know, I pretty much washed my hands and got disconnected from the industry, didn't go to the golf show for a number of years, didn't present, quit doing shows on the road, you know, like we all do sometimes. It was a little more difficult for me to get back on track um, than I thought it would be, and I thought it would be an easy transition, but You know, there's all these young bucks and does that are coming up the ranks now that are spectacular academics, right? They bring a lot to the table. They bring new technology to the table and they've got more energy than the Energizer Bunny. And competing with that, I'm glad that they're there, but competing with that was next to impossible for a lazy guy like me, right? I was like, wow, I got to do this now. (laughs) Yeah, well, in and amongst the laziness, was your uh, term as the crop science president, right? Yeah, that, that was in there. That, that overlapped slightly. I mean, there was one year when I was still a turfy and then when I was department head. And that was beneficial because I made contacts 
with people that were influencers that could help me try to affect change in the department that I oversaw, right? Well, it also gives you, in a state like Nebraska, and not that you didn't know it to begin with, but it really gives you a front row seat to the power of production agriculture in the U.S. and the importance of Nebraska to the food system here and abroad, right? There's a lot of things floating down the Mississippi come off of Nebraska. I wonder what your perspective broadly on ag has given you coming back. Yeah, it was, you have to get into the nuts and bolts of the turf grass sort of research community again, right? And, you know, I think your work in the organic matter project that we'll get to, I think is a good measure of that. But at the same time, you got a chance to separate yourself from the mindset over here. What was it like viewing us as another component rather than your principal focus of the whole agricultural environment in, in Nebraska and nationally as your, when you served as president? Frank, that was, that's a great observation because, you know, I wouldn't have been invited to serve on Secretary Vilsack's committee, right, which is basically you answer to the Secretary of Ag and that directs it and you've got some undersecretaries and everything. But yeah. that was an amazing, amazing experience. That's a tough table to get a seat at. No, it really is. When my vice chancellor of ag walks into a meeting where we were all out right after I got appointed and does the we're not worthy thing with his arms, that's the vice chancellor of agriculture at Nebraska telling me that's not something that I have the opportunity to do. I, I wasn't really saying that because he did, but you know, it was, it was a door that opened for me that would not have opened had I been more centric on turf. And you're exactly right. You know, I got to travel internationally in that capacity. I got to go to Cuba, right? Cuba was an amazing country with lots of problems, but also lots of people that want to adopt less technology and more, you know, agronomic principles. Cause I think we get a little obsessed with technology over just simple, you know, this is how the plant grows. <laughs> this is what we should do. It was intriguing to go to a communist country and look at that, but those opportunities would not have presented themselves if I had not had either the presidency at crop science or serving on the secretary of ags committee. Now I'd say the last bunch of years, I think the national turf foundation with Kevin Morris is probably been integral in this, but I would imagine during your time, both as president uh, and as chair in Nebraska, you were privy to a shift in the uh, specialty crop research area. The funding that's come to us, the Resist POA project, the Winter project, uh, there's a couple of USDA scientists, I believe, we've hired in the Southwest. I know an area near and dear to your heart, the Southwest. So it is an indication that turfgrass is being recognized as a discipline that should be given public funding for these big questions. I'm wondering how that looked from your perspective, watching the process or seeing it happen. And what is the response when you're sitting around those tables, especially now that we've been getting more funding in the research area? So once again, that is something that was really, it wasn't shocking because I always thought that, right? I think you would. I think most of our academic colleagues would. But when the Specialty Crop Research Initiative decided to include and actually encourage turf to come in, then the questions that I was getting on the Ag Committee or even in the Crop Science Room, because Crop Science has a lot of respect for turfgrass science, right? And they treat us really well because we clearly have the numbers in terms of students and participation. When I was president, I would go to business meetings and I would go to another C division, whatever it might be. And there would be, you know, 20 people at the business meeting and then go to the turf one, the C5 one that means only to academics, but at the end of the day, and there would be 150, right? And crop science recognizes that. And that's why they, they are pretty accommodating and recognize the value we bring. But what's more important is that 
We have granting agencies, USGA, who has been the most benevolent organization, the GCSAA, others as well, but they're not talking about the kind of numbers to answer the big question you're describing, right? They just don't have that kind of money. But when we go to the federal government, we look at the Specialty Crops Research Initiative. Now we're talking about real money, addressing real problems at the cellular level and all the way up the line to, you know, applied plant, whole plant physiology, right? That was huge. That's exactly right. And Mike Wan and folks in the green section, I believe they've come up with the 153045 mantra now. In the next 15 years, spend $30 million to reduce water 45%. Right. And I know both you and I would support, but might say, I think we heard our esteemed uh, Michigan State colleague maybe say it wasn't going to be enough money. And I heard that that is potentially negotiable if we need more money and it looks like there can be more opportunities. I'm really glad to see the USGA take this leadership role, much like they did, you know, and I know back in the 90s when the chemical and nutrient fate issues started coming up on the golf course. But listen, there's one other industry question, and I don't know if you followed it very much. I had Casey on the show once, uh, Dr. Reynolds from the Turfgrass Producers. And if that checkoff comes through, I'm not privy to what's been going on there. And I don't know if you are either, and feel free to say I don't know. But Casey threw around some money that for pennies a pallet, it could generate millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, money that could be spent on marketing, you know, like industry campaigns, like got real grass, like got milk. We don't care where you get your grass from, but have real grass. That sort of industry sector marketing approach, like the dairy industry. No, and you look at like the dairy industry and the soybean industry, and now hopefully the turf industry, but there are some commodities, and it's not one that I mentioned. They tend to focus only on marketing. When they do that, then that becomes counterproductive in my estimation. So I'm hoping Casey's on the boat and others are on the boat that I think we all know and love, right? I think they're going to ensure that we have this balanced sort of approach. But my guess is that, you know, I don't know specifically, kind of like you, Frank, but that's real big money because they're checking off. You look at the checkoff systems that work for other agronomic crops that are high volume, but low cost relatively, right? To what we pay for sod or pay for seed or whatever. You know, a checkoff system is a way to generate the kind of funds that I think we need to answer the bigger questions. You know, we can certainly run efficacy trials and fertility trials all day. Everyone can do that, but we can't run the big deep dives. I mean, there's a few people that are doing it on a shoestring. Doug Solda at Wisconsin, in my opinion, is doing some of the more deep dive work. Brian Horgan, when he worked with the USJ at Next Level kind of stuff, I think he's done some of it as well. We're not going to see that wide scale or big collaborative efforts with multiple institutions involved. And that's something the turf industry has to adjust to, right? They have to understand that those big projects, the big money projects, they may have somebody from social sciences and from an institution that doesn't even have an ag program. You bring in the experts and you put together these amazing packages and you'll generate interest and the reviewers are it's much more stringent than the reviewers that review a lot of the current grants that turf people go to so they just that's the sort of insight you get when you are working at the federal level right it's it's very interesting that we're talking about this we just got our annual research expenditure report that we get as a university i think we're ranked here at cornell 12th in the country for the amount of money we spend on research. And a lot of it comes from Department of Health and Human Services, NIH, where NIH is based, a lot through our vet school, right? You probably at Nebraska 
get a fair amount of your money. And that's been going up. I think we were up in the last couple of years, like 20% or more. So there's definitely money flowing in that end. But at the same time, the corporate investments are increasing 25 to 30% as well. Uh, Corporations are starting to utilize universities and not starting to, they've been doing it forever, but serving as really important parts of research and development. And I think having those $5 million, five-year multiple institutions like NIH, projects have is the kind of model that's going to answer the big questions like, okay, they're lowering water use in Vegas down to just below consumptive ET values. (laughs) What can you do to produce a golf course with that much water, right? These are big questions that you don't necessarily sell anything or apply anything to fix. In fact, you probably get restricted with what you can do. So listen, that's the end of that ramp. But let's just clean up this USGA award system where you get the award. Where are you going? When is it? So we can keep track of it when you actually are getting it. So it's the 25th of February. So it's in a little over a week, right? And they are very gracious. They invite the significant others. And my wife, Priscilla, gets to go to Napa and stay at a nice resort. And they have all kinds of events. And and so all the award winners go. It's at the USGA's annual meeting. You know, they bring in their volunteer crew and the members of the USGA, as well as the majority of their committees and stuff like that, have some representation there. So I'm looking forward to making Mike on. I'm really impressed with what he's done. Great leadership before, but Mike has brought a breath of fresh air, in my opinion. Yeah. And you can see it reflected in the changes we've seen in the green section over the last five to six years. I think there was some new paths that Kimberly and the group were charting before the change. And I think it just got accelerated with the addition of Mike's energy and then Matt Pringle getting really involved. Listen, we're just getting started. Let's take a break, Rock. We'll hear a message from our sponsors and we'll be right back and pick up some organic matter conversation. I'm Frank Rock. This is Professor Rakaswa at the University of Nebraska and the USGA award winner for 2023. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. I had the chance to meet Ken Ross several years ago when frost spray technology was just getting into the golf turf market. And like many of his fellow Minnesota natives, Ken and Frost Inc. had well-designed, innovative, and reliable technology, in this case, spray application technology. It's been a pleasure for me to advocate for the use of their products as I have seen how they perform. See for yourself by visiting them at frostserve.com. That's frostserv.com. All right, listen, Rock, good to have you back. Thanks for indulging me on the USGA conversation and all those great names that you get to add your list to. And I would say, I know people that nominate you, like Murph and Clark, I think Bruce has already got the award. Someday, some of us will probably be writing a letter for Murph to get that. So that's got to make you feel even better. But let's get on to conversations about organic matter. I actually haven't listened to it or watched it. We were supposed to be on with Micah not long ago, but you and I have been discussing organic matter, in fact, arguing about it on one level in front of people for a really long time. And like you said earlier, I have a tendency to shoot my mouth off a little bit, be a little provocative, see the response, and then talk about what the data shows. 
And, you know, you've really pioneered the idea of the solution to pollution is dilution. Now, you're on this committee that's going to develop a standardized method for the way golf course superintendents would monitor surface organic matter accumulation on putting greens and having a method for that beyond just soil nutrient chemical testing. So here's where I want to start. It seems like the way we've always talked about it, you and I, was you don't have to make a hole unless you got to put more sand in, then you can make a hole. And if you put a hole, make sure you fill it with sand because that seems to be better to do. But none of that matters if you don't get your growth under control. And so maybe we've gone from the solution to pollution is dilution to reducing pollution minimizes dilution, right? Then you don't need as much sand. So tell me how your thinking has evolved from when we first start to argue about this to sort of now all the way through where the committee is hopefully releasing something soon. That's a great route to take. And it's been, like you said, we've been talking about this a long time. And I mean, I remember when I was at Michigan State and, and you knew Kurt Thummel as well. Kurt was not pulling a plug, right? You know, he was punching it with a solid tie. And I thought that was really intriguing. And then Paul Vermillion, who was a USGA agronomist at the time, was talking to me after I was a, finished my degree and I was an academic at Nebraska. And he's like, you know, I don't understand why we pull a core. So, so that idea of not pulling a core and something to do with a solid tie or a venting technique as it ultimately developed was really somebody else's idea. Some people are like, well, you're the first person to say this. I said, yeah, maybe we were the first person to actually collect some data on it. There was actually some data on that before. So this is not a new thing, but it was clearly evidence that we probably didn't need to pull a core, right? So that became the kind of my mantra for a while. And I got in a little trouble with some of our more traditional agronomically focused people, especially one of my favorite people and a mentor with Paul Rickey when he said, you know, you might want to be careful how you tell people to uh, throw their aerator away, Rock. We still need cultivation. And clearly that's what the data shows. So I was flippant and an obnoxious I think you can relate, Frank, right? And and people were like, you got to be careful here. And there were agronomists with the USGA as well as other agronomists with some of the design firms and stuff. And they're like, you know, don't be saying that. And now they've adopted it. I mean, we've got data that shows that there was a significant number, somewhere around 65, 70% based on really tertiary or, or superficial survey data that, you know, they're not pulling a core, but they are increasing top dressing sand, which directs increasing other things to get the sand into the profile. You're exactly right, because if remember when we all started on this, we were putting a ridiculous amount of fertilizer on greens, right? Right. You know, six to eight pounds is what I remember, uh, liquid urea, which comparative to today's standards, you know, what we consider to be normal. Some superintendents indicate that they're putting on three quarters of a pound when we know they're getting a pound from their organic matter on an annual basis. But so they're, you know, they're down around two to three pounds is what I would guess at. And we could argue a half pound. Well, certainly we've reduced the need for top dressing or dilution by reducing the amount of biomass that's produced on the surface where we're going to cause the problem. And yet we still have recommendations out there of, you know, 40 cubic feet per thousand per year. And our data shows something around between 18 and 24. So we need to concurrently reduce the amount of sand. I don't think we need can eliminate it. We do have some people that are not top dressing at all. And, you know, they're seeing some buildup and some other things. But at the end of the day, I think we've come to some conclusions that were atypical of what we did 30 years ago. And the industry has evolved with us in that regard. Of course. Thank you for bringing that up. That's exactly where I wanted to go. Much of what we used to talk about People couldn't really put into context because people had been over fertilizing for so long 
and the mineralization from the organic matter was happening at an enormous rate as well. So I used to think we could bag up some of these soils and sell them as fertilizers once you've had grass on it long enough and had been feeding it. But bringing it to today now, Rock, one of the things I hear, and I think I had this conversation with Doug a year, maybe about a year ago, I had him on the program And we were talking about the Organic Matter Committee and we were talking about the different spots where guys were taking multiple samples on these greens. And, you know, you did this work with Chaz years ago, surveying golf courses, right, nationally on this. But now you did it at a finer level. And as I understood it, correct me if I'm wrong, as you went out and gridded a putting green where you had more traffic, you had less organic matter. And theoretically, where you have less organic matter, you're going to have less opportunities for nitrogen to mineralize and and support that growth. And then consequently, with less growth, you probably need less sand in those spots. So obviously, it's hard to not put sand in a spot like that. You can't get GPS sand applications, you know, on knobs necessarily or walk on, walk off areas, but you can get nitrogen applied there on a more precise level. Can you talk a little bit about what we know and what you guys are learning about the impact of traffic on organic matter buildup and the potential impact that's going to have on growth and the way we've moved to less fertilization? Yeah, and that's a really good direction to go, Frank. So we recommend avoiding entry exit points, right? You know, we've academically taken those numbers and looked at them and, you know, they can be up to a percent or a percent and a half lower because of course they've been worn off, right? We avoid the perimeter if they're using triplex mowers because the tendency is to be less organic matter in the perimeter cut when they're using um, triplex mowers. Why is there less organic matter in high traffic areas. I mean, we know why there's more organic matter on the championship tee that's getting three pounds of N and not getting the traffic and it's putting it into really just what we'd call straight up thatch between the verdure and the soil. But how is traffic reducing it? So you've got abrasive loss, right? I mean, clearly, even with flotation tires on a triplex greens mower, you know, they're going to spend their, especially on that perimeter cut, we alter mowing patterns for a reason, but of course, when you're on the perimeter cut, you can't alter the wheel thing and you can stagger them. You can do some other things, but really if you want to maintain the integrity of the green shape and stuff. You're pretty much tracking in the same hole. We don't see this with people that walk mow and the advent of triplex mowers now that can maintain a cut that's pretty high quality. You know, we see more and more people for a labor saver. You know, we can talk about labor all day long, right? Um, that they're using the triplex mowers, but it's just simply wear and tear. If you rub your hand on the carpet once, that's not a big deal, but you do that 10,000 times. And of course you start to break down the fibers and because the organic matter is removed or doesn't produce, then we don't have a residual end that we know now is a major component in how a plant gets nitrogen, right? It's an interesting route to go down, but I'm not sure we have enough solid data to say, if you were microsite putting down nitrogen, you'd certainly want to think about putting down more in those entry exit points or on a green that you had a highly variable organic matter content. So what do you think about the impact on just growth? I mean, the grass canopy isn't being abraded to the point where it wears out. It does sometimes, but you know, we roll surfaces all the time. And when there's any form of active growth, and we could define it by growth potential, but anything I've seen, grasses actually do better and actually can be more competitive under those conditions. And we've been sort of talking about this, reporting on observations and doing this sort of weed control, disease control with Nikolai, the guys out in the Pacific Northwest with Microdokium patch 
My question is, when you're rolling and you're abrading, it seems like maybe growth is altered and maybe the plant is just not partitioning as much as that energy into lignaceous tissue and it's just having to replenish the cellulose all the time. I mean, listen, this is our deep dive segment. So grab some oxygen and check your levels on the tube that you got on your waist and see if what I'm talking about has any merit. You think it's growth? Oh, I think it's definitely growth. But I mean, I think there's a lot going on. You know, we we look at the rollers, you know, they distribute the pressure more uniformly. Plus, there's really not the slippage that we see with a greens mower on a perimeter cut or even a greens mower during the routine mowing if the grass is wet or whatever. You know, I think the rollers are designed to uniformly compress, not compact the sands and the above ground tissue. But we also know that if you've top dressed recently and then you run a roller over it, that helps settle that so that there's more intimate contact between the sand and we don't get the puffiness that bentgrass greens tend to get in the summer months with a roller. Rolling is a necessary practice. I would put it up there in the primary practices, even though people still consider it not on a golf green or on a sports field. I think rolling is a primary practice now because I think you can skip mowings. You know, we, we know this from all the great data that's been collected by colleagues, right? It's obviously wear and it's obviously going to have some abrasion, but it's not the same as foot traffic or it's not the same where you're picking up a non-spiked, even though they've got some nubs on them and it's concentrated in and around the cup and entry and exit points or whatever. So I want to equate the traffic that happens from a roller to what happens with the more aggressive traffic, if you will, of foot and equipment that continually goes over the same spot over and over. And we rotate our rollers too, right? Rotate directions, et cetera. So now let's talk about the testing protocol and what you guys are learning. You don't have to take us all the way behind the scenes, but there obviously have been some key learnings that are going to inform this new standardized testing. And again, a big shout out to the USGA, the GS3. We had a meeting with the regional director here in the Northeast, Elliott Downing, the other day, Carl Scamenti, my colleague and I, and we're getting ready to get the GS3 here integrated into our Deacon system, you know, as part of our performance data that we've been doing at the state parks with our golf shoe work. You know, I think when we can get these numbers, it's really going to help inform our decision making. But let's talk a little bit about some key learnings that are going to inform this organic matter testing protocol moving forward. What do you think, Rock? Well, so I'll preface it real quickly. You know, we do the agronomic data, right? We we were taking a standard three inch or a standard six inch, which is prescribed by the triple, you know, the Soil Science Society of America document, you know, remove the organic on the surface. All of that makes sense if you're dealing with corn or beans or wheat or whatever, but we continued to do that in all the research and everything until more recently when we were like, we're interested in that top inch or maybe even depending upon the age of the green, even less than an inch. And yet we physically remove a significant portion of that. Is that a true representation of what we're trying to manage, right? So we've done some extensive testing at multiple locations. Doug Soldat has taken the lead on that. Him and a student, Travis Miller, are doing a wonderful job on that. And, you know, they've come back with saying, and others have said this before, Michael Woods, for example, whatever, you know, we should just leave the verdure on. I mean, we should just mow it, take the sample and leave everything on. We know when we go to that, we get a more accurate representation. So I think the recommendation is going to say, none of it's been solidified, but I think the recommendation is going to say, leave the top on, don't take it off. Because there's variability associated with cutting it off, right? Not everyone cuts off the same. You use a dull knife, you're shearing and tearing. There's all kinds of reasons. 
And then have things like, what about sample size? Thought certainly a bigger sample is going to be better, but we went with a bigger sample, an inch and a half sampler versus the traditional three quarter inch soil sampler. And we didn't see a market increase in precision when we did that. And that was at multiple locations with some really great Buck Rogers statistics that Doug's group is doing. So it's like, okay, well, we don't need to take a big sample. I don't know what your recommendation was, but when you're taking samples for organic matter, we thought, well, you went 20 or 30 three-quarter inch samples randomly selected across a green. Turns out that number is between five and 10 to truly represent. We did big grid sampling on 10-foot centers on multiple golf holes in real world conditions at multiple locations. And it turns out that it's between five and 10. We're not sure if the recommendation is going to say five to 10 or 10. Right. But basically what you're saying is we're focusing in on the smaller surface, but also including more of that material in our data collection. We can use a smaller hole. You guys have optimized the amount of samples you got to take. So it seems to be very well thought out. But I want to make sure I understand this. These numbers are going to be hard to equate to the numbers that if you've been already doing this with your what people call istrict or undisturbed core testing, whatever people have been doing in the zero to three centimeter These numbers with the way we're doing it now are not necessarily rock comparable, right? And basically, we're going to have to take this data for a while until we really understand sort of the meaningfulness of it, particularly at each superintendent's location. What do you think? A hundred percent, Frank, a hundred percent. And we understand that. But because we were, sometimes you look at the academic papers as well as looking over the fence and somebody said, hey, my organic matter is this. And you're like, oh, mine's, you know, 2% higher. And they're two different labs with two different protocols. So a standardized test, loss on ignition is the way to get a temperature or temperatures that make the most sense, whatever. A lot of those comparative things done prior to, exclusive of Istric, because Istric does a lot of stuff in-house and they've got tons of data on that. And this is not a reflection of a group or a company that does this and has done it for years and years. This is a reflection of the people that want to send it in when they send in their soil samples and get an organic matter number. And, you know, we'll certainly have some guidelines on timing and everything, but, and then prescribe a method because the other thing I didn't even mention was grinding and sieving, right? The standard method says grind and sieve. We show that you lose a lot of organic matter when you grind and sieve, it stays on that number 10 screen, right? You know, the clumpy stuff. So you aren't even really representing and it adds another level of variability. So we're streamlining the process, but when you send a sample in, if and when we get this done, and we hope to have it done, you know, within the year, then you would tell the lab not to grind and sieve is one possibility and, and not to remove the organic from the surface. Right. Wouldn't you bet? I mean, listen, The last time we've taken on anything like this was when Norm went out and redid the specs in the early 90s, right? In the 90s. Yeah, when when they brought all the labs under the, uh, you know, the accreditation system, right? Once this method gets out there and superintendents start requesting it, there are going to be standard protocols that the labs are going to follow. And why don't you add that? Part of this process is going to include the development of an ASTM standard, yes? Exactly right. That's where we're going to go. We're not going to go to an academic journal. We're going to go to ASTM so we can cite it and provide it to labs or provide it to researchers that are doing similar work so that we don't have the confusion and the apples and oranges comparisons that has happened too much, actually, in the last you know, 20, 40 years, right? Because you know, different methodology, different sampling techniques, et cetera, et cetera. 
we're really looking to get an ASTM method. We have two papers that we've published as ASTM papers on some sprayer technology that I did a number of years ago. And it's a process, right? It's, it's every bit as rigorous as sending it off to crop science to get reviewed by experts, but they'll bring in technical experts that we don't often associate with the reviews in some of the academic journals to really say, yeah, this is enough data. You know, that's why they put together the I'm not sure I like the term, the organic matter brain trust. I would certainly say yeah. <laughs> Doug Soldat and Doug Lindy and Jim Murphy follow that criteria. There was one individual that we tried to get to join us, but um, he was too busy with other things. But then we've got a group of people that have been doing this for a while and we'll come up with a method that ASTMO will prove. And then we've got it, right? I think that's where you were going, Frank. Then we've got it. We'll worry less about some of the variabilities and, and nuances of organic matter sampling because we'll talk about depth, you know, for lack of a better term, we'll call it OM246 or OM123, right? right. Um, that MICA has been selling, you know, for a lot of years. It's, right a way to sample, which makes sense because, you know, number one, if you take a sample below the organic layer, it's going to be unnecessarily lower mm -hmm. when it's not a reflection of what we're interested in, right? So, well, I mean, this is, this is a great update for everybody to hear, particularly the golf course superintendents and folks that are managing surfaces, sports fields as well, right? That they'll have to be calibrated maybe differently, but traffic is traffic, you know, no matter where you are. Listen, Rock, let's take one more break. Uh, I want to come back and talk a little bit uh, more about some thought leadership, right? I mean, one of the things that Micah often does, I know Doug does, I know you've done, uh, I try to do, and sometimes you lead with thought, right? Thought leadership. Listen, we're thinking that this is a better way to go. And you also put yourself out there, you know, as, as an easy target, which I certainly have done in my career. Listen, we'll come back and talk about some more stuff with regard to precision turf management. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm with Professor Rakaswa. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. I remember when here at Frankly Speaking, we were in need of another title sponsor a few years ago as the industry continued to contract. I was at a regional golf course superintendent association meeting and I had a chat with my longtime colleague, Tom Weiner, the VP of sales for the plant food company. Now, I'd gone a few rounds with Tom over the years during our early days at Beth Page and the two U.S. Opens and PGA events. And I was pleased when Grant Platt said yes, and I'm still pleased to support the use of plant food products that are based on university research. Products and services is what set plant food company apart. Meet with a plant food representative to see for yourself. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. We are going to wrap up our conversation, Rock, by talking about a recent paper that you were involved in. I know Michael Carlson was working with Bill Kreiser and also uh, now works with the Greenkeeper app. And of course, Bill is one of those thought leaders, particularly in this growth regulation area. As Bill moved on, you provided support with this project, which looks really great. And a recent publication that came out on a review of precision management for golf course stuff. Now, listen, I promise you and I are going to talk about it at a high level because it takes quite a while scholarly to digest the, when we talk about precision turf and digital support tools, right? We used to use the word data-driven and variable rate. We have precision ag, but here at Cornell, we call it digital ag, right? So all of these terms are flying around. 
When you hear it and people say, oh, you know, what is this? And you certainly were involved in the writing of this paper and review of this paper. From your perspective, do you like that term? Because it looks like what scholarship has adopted. And give us a sense of, from your perspective, what it is when we say precision turf management. So I like the term PTM or precision turf management. It's always nice to have an acronym that you can use because you don't have to roll PTM off on your tongue as frequently. So that's convenient. And I think there might be something more catchy or something more marketable. But at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. The idea is, at least conceptually, that a practitioner, a superintendent, a sports field manager, whatever, would have the opportunity to use decision support tools so that they could make the most logical, economical, environmental decision about applications or practices or that thing. Now, I will caution it, you know, the develop of models and some of these things that are, you know, often talked about but rarely uh, made is that, you know, we tried to do a model for organic matter and collected data for two years. And what we came up with was a big fat zero because of the other variabilities involved. I don't think that's true of some of the other ones where we've got some decision support tools out there. But the bigger issue was, and I was shocked by the data, is that we're not really ready for this yet in turf. We're just not there yet because we, you know, surveys of superintendents indicate that their knowledge of or their willingness to participate in modifying what they're doing is less than I would have anticipated based on the technologies that are out there and the capacity that I know superintendents have. So that was a little bit shocking, Frank, when we when that was one of our sort of bottom lines is that we're not really there yet, but we're on our way. That's right. And I think um, all we have to do, and you know, we talked about this earlier, is to look at our colleagues in professional land management, farmers, horticulturalists, people that grow things you know, like we do, they're at 4.0, right? Where it might be at 3.0, where you know, we're sort of ready for it. But there isn't been much widespread adoption. Now, listen, before we go down any data hole, right, I want to sort of dispel a little bit the myth that you got to use models. You got to look at things on your phone. You have to enter a lot of data. You have to have a variable rate sprayer. You have to have all this technology to be able to be precise. And here's what I want to parlay off of what we talked about just a minute ago with regard to traffic and maybe growth and nitrogen use. And maybe greens aren't the place to do it. But, Rock, what if I could on the fly just decide, you know, I don't really. Those fairways are down by the river. I feed them. I got to mow them more. Why don't I just not treat those three and I treat those three up there? They get more traffic. Maybe they need 1.5x amount of N. You know, it's, in my opinion, I'd like to see one thing in a tank. But all you're doing is eliminating not a putting material on certain things. And the same would be true for pesticides using risk models and maybe having surfaces that are more disease resistant. Can you help me dispel the myth that this is just done with technology, that it can be done by simply deciding not to do certain things? Certainly saying I don't need to do this because this is why and understanding the why doesn't require an app or, you know, a precision applier. You just don't put as much in the tank or you speed up, right? I mean, you don't have to have a really nice sprayer. It's nice, right? It obviously makes it easier, but, you know, you just alter speed and you can apply more or apply less in areas that you think need less or more, especially of nutrition, which seems to be a big target, right? 
and you know we've done you know we mentioned earlier we've done so much to reduce the amount that is actually applied now we could even hone that further but we don't need the technology i would agree with 100% and maybe that's part of the problem and you know the paper that michael carlson took the lead on clearly indicated that there was some apprehension about technology which i think everyone gets right you know, even our, our younger generation that walks around with a phone in their hand, if you ask them to look at something that's not phone related, they kind of flip a little bit, right? At least some of the students that I work with do. So no, it's not about the technology. It's about the knowledge. And even if you get into technology, you still have to have the knowledge to drive that. You A decision-making aid is an aid. It doesn't make the decision for you. You still have to think about, well, does that make sense, right? It may be a second opinion, but it still has to make sense to you as a person that's on that site using an app that makes sense in a lot of ways and has been tested, but it still may not be what you need at your location because you still have to have the agronomic side of visual estimate and what you know to be true on your site, regardless. You made some great examples earlier. Does that make sense? I mean, that's where I'm at. Yeah, for sure. And I and I would say that this, you know, exactly right. And I think the more you have available to collect data is good. I think the GS3 is a big shift in certainly managing the three and a half to four acres that most superintendents are managing on the putting surfaces. I think more about this precision stuff off the putting surface and the surrounds, right, where, you know, so much of the game needs that area and the traffic gets focused there. I think more about larger applications out into those fairways of water, uh, you know, nutrients and pesticides. And, you know, I think we've been a bit recalcitrant, you know, resistant to change, I think, uh, on our spray rigs, uh, for sure. But I would also argue, I'm not sure we're getting the best technology from the people who paint the iron. And there's other ways of getting that technology operating more effectively. Now, I'm sure people are using this technology with lots of different colors of metal, but my experience has been people who do the GPS stuff for a living are doing it really well, um, and that's working pretty good. So I have a lot of good feelings about where the technology can go. I'm wondering what you think about how does a superintendent go about figuring out what data matters to them? If you had to say, where do you start? Where do I start, Rock? Where do I start with this PTM thing? What's the best way to get going? I'd tell them, just put one thing in the tank so you can utilize variable rate technology because you can't use variable rate technology when you've got a 12-product cocktail uh, in there with, you know, three fungicides and, and six nutrient products. What's the, what's the first thing you'd tell them? So, I mean, I have similar sort of things because I remember one time I looked at a tank and I'm like, what's in here? And they said, I've got 17 different products. There's no room for water. Yeah. Where, where does the water come from? Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that, that's another conversation altogether. You know, I start with if a superintendent, you know, or if I'm talking to a group of superintendents and, you know, one or two people are doing something different and others are like, well, you know, I can't, I'm, not, I'm reluctant to do that. Or, you know, we start talking about doing it at a smaller scale or doing it, you know, limited just, you know, to see that they're comfortable with it. Because the buy-in to data collection, I wasn't really talking about data collection, but, you know, the whole idea that there would be people with buckets collecting clippings. If you had brought that up to a superintendent meeting 20 years ago, oh, what do you think would have happened? They would thought you were crazy. Yeah, they would have thought you were crazy. And now I'm not saying all the superintendents do that. And I know some superintendents have told me, well, I always look at what's in the bucket. And if that's enough for them to make a decision to apply less, then that's a good thing, right? I mean, you know, let's let's look at that. And but say it's that's, more that's of an it. approximation than an actual number, right? 
right? I mean, right. if you got a number, you could argue about maybe how you got that number, but the number's the number, right? The number is the number. No, and I think that that reluctance to do actual data collection is the first hurdle, actually, you know, more than anything. And when they see the technology like a GS3, I was shocked when I was there at the USJ booth at conference and, you know, oh God, I got to get me one of those. And I'm like, really? Do you, do you use a variable rate sprayer? Do you use this? Do you use GPS imagery to look at and see what the course is? Oh no, but I got to have one of those balls. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, yeah, because it's the newest, greatest thing. And kudos for the, the engineers and everyone, the agronomists that have tested it. And you know, they got a gazillion numbers and we've got one on the way as well. And I think a lot of the academics are going to, I hope they don't mess it up by, you know, collecting so much data that they don't know. But it collects this data that you now have a reasonably, I mean, it actually could do speed rather than distance, you know, because I've always hated green speed as a term, right? It's, it's a distance. You know, you don't have MPH or, you know, feet per Well, and, and speaking of this, listen, as we wrap up, as we wrap up, speaking of being ahead of your time, I believe there was an instrument called the wristometer there for a while that you were involved in where we were originally trying to determine the sort of deflection and the wobble and the chatter in ball roll stuff, right? That's, uh, boy, that dates us. How long ago was that now? Uh, 20 some odd years. Anne is now a... Uh fully promoted faculty member here at the University of Nebraska, Ann Strike did that work. And yeah, clearly it was a cumbersome device made out of a eight inch piece of PVC cut in half with these sensors and it had to be kept dark, blah, 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 whatever. And it was clearly impractical, but it did exactly what the GS3 does for the most part, but not as elegant, right? It would be impossible to build out a lot of issues. But at the end of the day, you know, there have been people that have looked at things like that. You know, leave it up to the USGA to spend the time and resources to come up with something that that is a tool that I think superintendents are going to be able to use. And if that's the hook, and then they're like, oh, well, maybe I should look into this, or maybe I should look into this. And you see what I'm saying, Frank? Maybe that's a hook that we needed to get more adoption of these I'm ATM. I hope so as well. I hope so as well. Yeah, because because it's one, one device that's really taking three or more different measurements. So listen, Rock, we could talk about this all day. We've already gone a little bit longer than I thought, but it's been so enjoyable to chat with you again like this. We chat uh, frequently offline, but first time in a long time uh, doing this like this. Really appreciate you taking your time. One more big congratulations from the Frankly Speaking community to you for the USGA award and go enjoy your time in Napa with Priscilla. Well done. Thank you, Frank, and appreciate the invite. Rock Kaswa, the professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, current USGA award winner. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. Big thanks to Professor Rock Kaswa. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. <laughs>